The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Well, stocks closing near the lows after a midday meltdown. That's the scorecard on Wall Street, but the action's just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan with John Fort. Coming up this hour, key reads on, our, on retail, housing, and more when we get quarterly reports from Toll Brothers. Urban Outfitters and Palo Alto Networks. Also Intuit. Intuit too, yeah. We've got an exclusive interview as well with Adobe CEO Shantu Narayan on the company's news today about integrating generative AI into Photoshop. And let's get straight to the market action. Stocks fading through the session today, closing near worst levels. Indices turned lower in midday, as we just mentioned before, after debt ceiling talks concluded without a deal. Joining us now, Barbara Duran, CIO at BD8 Capital Partners, and uh, Craig Fair, Principal and Investment Strategist at Edward Jones. Good afternoon to you both. Barbara, I'll start with you. Um, the fact that we, the S&P did end the day down 1%, and oh, by the way, most Treasury yields also turned lower in the second half of the session as well. I mean, what does that tell us about sentiment here? Well, I think that there's been a lot of skepticism all along, despite, you know, the run-up we've seen in NASDAQ, and that's because the market advances so narrow with all the big cap tech names. Clearly, the debt ceiling is an overhang. I think most people there in the, uh, mentally think, okay, it cannot happen, and so you're not seeing the market really discounted. But there's still that fear, that 0.001% chance that that could happen. So I think that's happening there. Plus, we're, all, we're more than 95% of the way through earnings, and earnings have been overall pretty darn good, 75 plus percent for earnings and uh, revenue beating expectations but we're winding down this week with some retailers and the semis and so that that catalyst there's going to be a bit it's going to be back to focusing on the pce inflation number on friday in the fed when they meet in june yeah and trying to game whether they're going to pause here or raise raise interest rates more yeah and of course that pce reading on friday is going to be very much in focus we get fed minutes uh, as well tomorrow craig and then of course I realize it's been somewhat of a mixed bag in general day to day, but today you had some pretty resilient data, whether it was flash services, PMI or new home sales this morning as well. Uh, looking through your notes, base case for you is a mild recession. You sticking with it? Sticking with it. Uh, Morgan, I think you're right, though. Uh, if we look at small caps holding in today, that probably corroborates exactly what you just said, which is some of the data that we got today are not signaling, as is, has been the case for a while now, are not signaling an imminent or even deep recession. Our base case remains that we're probably going to slide into some sort of a, of a mild recession. I'll note it might look quite atypical at this stage. We've already seen cylinders of the economic engine misfire. The consumer continues to hold in. Um, and so at the time we see some more fatigue from consumers, that might be about the time we're seeing a rebound in other areas of the economy. So we not not get that big whoosh to the downside. Uh, but broadly, we do think that we're at a phase where economic activity is going to decelerate. Markets already moved to price in a lot of that last year. Uh, but I do think we're probably setting ourselves up for about a, a, a 
volatility and anxiety, just given the markets have been quite lethargic for an extended period of time, today being uh, really the first bit of volatility we've seen in some time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it reminds me of what Torsten Slock from Apollo said on our air yesterday. He, he's, he's calling for basically a non-recession recession. Craig, um, what does that mean in terms of how you're positioned in this market? Uh, and if the, if the worst of the fears or I guess the worst of the impact of this has potentially already come and gone uh, in the market last fall, uh, does that mean you're constructive? I would say constructive is a, a reasonable way to put it. I, you know, our view is that heading through the summer, uh, there's going to be a bit, a, a bit more chop to this market, largely because this rally that we've seen so far this year, whether we go back to the lows in October and we're up better than 15% or even look year to date, eight, eight plus percent on the rally. It's really been predicated on a view that, that markets expect the Fed to cut rates pretty aggressively. Now, we've taken, what, 50 basis points of those rate cuts out of the market just in the last couple of weeks, which I think is good news. Uh, but I think the markets are still a little bit too complacent. But I'll stick with your um, with your other word, which is constructive. I think markets went last year to the negative outcome from Fed tightening. And now this year, I think markets are starting to look ahead to the ultimate economic and earnings recovery late this year into 2024. And I think you can, as an investor, I think you can be optimistic there. We're, we're pulling in the oars a little bit. We're ra- rather neutral on an asset class perspective, really looking for an opportunity to become uh, a bit more constructive to, to add to some risk positions as we move into the latter stages of the year. Okay. Barbara, um, we could talk about this rotation out of big cap tech today. Uh, do you like big cap tech, uh, given the fact that we have seen such a rally this year? And as, as we do look to NVIDIA earnings after the bell, and there's been a lot of uh, debate about whether that valuation of that stock specifically has been overstretched. Yeah, I mean, it's the question of the moment, isn't it? Because we've had such a monster run, and typically you can see a pullback and a rest in any kind of stock or sector that's had such a run. But if you look at Microsoft or Meta or Apple or any of these, number one, interestingly enough, Morgan Stanley did a piece yesterday that they are still under-owned versus their um, weighting in the S&P 500. And if you look at even where their peak PEs are, they've had a big bounce back from the low of of late last year, but they're still only halfway back in terms of PE and their valuation to their peak PEs. And obviously, we know what's happened. Number one, starting out the year, things were super cheap. You know, a lot of these mega caps. And we've had a big new thing called AI, which has really woke, awakened investors to what is happening here. And of course, they had an early start, whether it was Facebook or Apple or, or Alphabet, cost-cutting, cutting employees, this sort of thing, um, starting in the fall. And they continued into this year. So they're well-positioned. And, of course, if you think growth is slowing, here are, here are super growers with big cash flow. So I think there's more to come. I think right now a rest would be normal. And so I wouldn't chase it, particularly something like NVIDIA, which is going to be a long-run one run winner. But what we know in stocks like this, the earnings will keep coming up and coming up, and they will grow into their valuations. So not so worried for even the medium term to long term. But for now, you might not want to chase all right. Barbara, Craig, thank you. Meantime, as we have been talking, uh, Intuit earnings are out. That stock is about flat right now after uh, hours, and the reason could be the mixed bag uh, in, in the quarter and the guide. The revenue about in line at about $6 billion. Non-GAAP EPS, uh, $8.92 versus $8.48 expected. When we get into the guide, the revenue guide for Q4 uh, looks solid, but the EPS guide to a range of $1.43 to $1.50 
$1.48, a bit shy of the $1.51 that the street was expecting. However, in the full year guide, uh, the company is saying to expect between $14.28 and $14.3 billion in revenue versus a 14 point, just shy of 14.2 that the street was looking for. So that's a little stronger. Also, the EPS guide between $14.20 and $14.25, that is stronger than the $13.83 adjusted that the street was looking for. And so, Morgan, when you're looking out at the full year, the guide looks stronger. If you're looking just at the the next quarter and particularly on the EPS guide, not as strong. We'll have to look through to see small business, credit karma, how all of that shakes out, right? As we're facing these economic headwinds, especially credit karma with fewer financial institutions, regional banks looking to make loans, that impacts businesses like Credit Karma. We talked to Tim Chen over at NerdWallet about this. They're not getting paid to bring business into those banks because those banks are looking to keep more of their capital. Yeah, I mean, it's such a key reading on small and medium businesses and, of course, what we're seeing in that part of the economy um, where you would expect higher interest rates and some of the regional bank turmoil and, and some of these other things that are that are swirling around on a macro level to, to actually impact more quickly, more harshly. So it's interesting to see that these numbers are, are what they are. Yeah, the d- decline in total IRS returns of 2% also hitting in, in this TurboTax quarter. For more on this, don't miss a first on CNBC interview with Intuit CEO tomorrow on Squawk on the Street. Uh, Meantime, Palo Alto Network's earnings also out. Frank Holland has those numbers. Frank? Hey, Jim. I mean, uh, hey, John. Excuse me. I'm reading the prompter here. Uh, Shares of Palo Alto Networks um, kind of flip-flopping between positive and negative right now. Revenues were in line, but it was a beat on EPS. EPS of $1.10 per share. Uh, The estimate was $0.93 per share. Looking at the guidance, it was a little bit mixed. The revenue was basically in line, but the EPS guidance for the next quarter was strong. Um, For the current quarter, going back to that, we saw uh, a beat when it came to billings. The company also raised its free cash flow margin guidance and also its overall margin guidance. So something to watch there, especially in tech's year of efficiency. But again, um, investors clearly not that excited about the guidance for the current quarter. Um, so a beat, uh, sorry, top line, in line, beat on EPS. Um, the call is coming up later today. We're expecting to get more information about their next gen cybersecurity products. That's really the growth driver for this company. Back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you. Well, I might not be Jim, but folks, don't miss Jim Kramer's exclusive interview with Palo Alto CEO Nikesh Arora. That's tonight. 6 p.m. on Mad Money. And now CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us from the New York Stock Exchange as usual. Mike, what are you looking at? Well, John, we've been talking so much about how this market so far the last few months has been narrowly focused in terms of leadership on the very largest stocks. A little bit of a, of a reversal in that, just the hints of it so far. This is the top 50 stocks, largest 50 in the S&P 500 relative to the overall Russell 2000. It's a one-year look. So you see the kind of traded leadership back and forth and actually on a one-year basis, basically flat on the Russell 2000, but a little bit of uh, a, actually a big lead opened up since especially the uh, Uh, banking turmoil started back in March. However, let's zoom in on a month-to-date basis, the same uh, relationship here, and you'll see them uh, starting to come back together. So essentially, a little bit of of a retracement, a broadening out of the market. I don't see the Russell 2000 or small caps in general themselves as a key bellwether that has to perform really well for the overall market to do well. It's about six, five or six percent of total U.S. market cap is in the 2000 stocks of the Russell 2000. It's smaller than Apple, but you don't want to see it completely going down every day and making new lows 
And so, so far, it's very tentative, but so far you've seen a little bit of a return uh, to the many from the few uh, in terms of leadership here, guys. The fact that we've seen the Russell 2000 begin to play catch up here in recent days, Mike, how much of this can be attributed to stabilization that we've seen in regional bank stocks? A lot, uh, not just because regional bank stocks are a big part of the Russell 2000. They're actually not dominant there. But the Russell 2000 trades along with perceptions of credit and banking stress and financial conditions. And so, yes, the comeback in the regional bank stocks, overall bank stocks, have been right along line with the Russell 2000. So these are these trading relationships that exist for, you know, a kernel of a reason. And then they become uh, just kind of mechanical correlations. And, uh, and we'll see if that continues. But definitely, it's also been good news that you've gotten some relief on the bank stock front, at least for now. All right. Mike Santoli, thank you. And after the break, $170 billion software company Adobe announcing the integration of generative AI tools into Photoshop today. We're going to talk to the CEO, Shantanu Narayan, about the company's latest move into AI when overtime comes right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. A watershed moment in artificial intelligence for image creation. Adobe today announcing that its Firefly AI is coming to Photoshop as a beta. AI for images has made huge strides, but it's not perfect. I've used several. They have similar challenges with details like fingers, toes, and noses. And for fun, I asked Adobe Firefly, for example, to show me a dragon outside a convenience store. Pretty good, right? But Let's see. Let's zoom in right here. You'll see part of an extra leg. It's not quite sure to do what to do with toes and talons. OpenAI's Dali, the others all have similar issues. Joining us now exclusively, Adobe CEO Shantanu Narayan. Shantanu, you're not doing rolling this out to make dragons outside convenience stores. In Photoshop, this is more about uh, you know, erasing things out of image, doing simpler uh, fills, more basic things that Photoshop can do using AI to speed up the process for artists as you start to roll this into your core products, right? Well, John, as you said, it really is a watershed moment uh, for, I think, the future of creative cloud. Uh, you know, we've had this vision of unleashing creativity for all. And a lot of uh, conversation has happened about generative AI and how generative AI can accelerate the creative process. But that's not adequate. And what you really need is a product like Photoshop, where you can integrate generative AI into what you're trying to edit. And so 
when we showed uh, what we have done with integration into Photoshop uh, with Firefly, I mean, people's jaws just drop uh, because it now finally is that co-pilot, the creative co-pilot that allows somebody who's creative to uh, verbalize what they want to do, bring it into Photoshop, and then Photoshop does its magic as it relates to precision. So hmm. uh, I think it's a watershed moment for us, and it's just uh, really exciting to see how we're accelerating innovation in this exciting new space. So, Shantanu, we always try to look out for investors as well. And so let's talk about potential financial impacts of this. Do you expect this to grow the number of users who can get financial benefit out of a Creative Cloud subscription? So do you expect more more market opportunity for Creative Cloud out of this primarily? Or is this mainly going to make existing subscribers more productive lower churn and increase margins that way? The two words that I think of, John, when I think about what the potential of generative AI is within our applications is both accelerant, uh, which is what you referred to, making the current creative professional so much more productive. And therefore, if they're more productive, they can take on more tasks and therefore make more money. But I also think of it as being accessible. And that, I think, is the holy grail. I mean, for us, making our products more accessible uh, because everybody has this story to tell, uh, we think there are a billion people who wish to express themselves. And what we have done with Firefly, what we are doing with Express, the partnerships that we've announced with companies like Google really is going to bring creativity uh, to all. And so I do think it's both uh, accessible, but it's also accelerant. Now, lay out for me, what Adobe is doing with AI because there's more to it than generative, right? We've talked in the past about Adobe Sensei. Uh, People who are using Adobe Premiere know that you can auto-generate transcripts and captioning. Uh, You rolled that out, I think, about a year ago. It's enormously useful for people who work with video a lot, as I personally know. But what are the buckets that you put this AI R&D into and how are you thinking about how they're going to add value in terms of uh, revenue to the suite going forward? It's a great question, John. And uh, as you point out, we have been investing in Adobe Sensei, which allows you to do so much magic. I mean, things like when you are in a video uh, production process, as you mentioned, and you've edited one frame and you want that editing of the one frame to then extend into the entire video, our artificial intelligence technology, Adobe Sensei, allows you uh, to make that happen across every single frame without your having to manually do it, saving you hours in the process. As it relates to generative AI specifically, uh, I would say there are three layers to that, John. I mean, there's the data layer, and Adobe is so differentiated in that we have so much data. And we've also taken a very differentiated approach in terms of training our models uh, with data that we have commercial license for. The second layer to generative AI is about these foundation models. And there are very few companies on the planet, Adobe is certainly one of them, that can invest in a foundational model for imaging. And so we've done that. You can expect to see us do the same for vector and animation and 3D and and video. And then there's the interface layer, which is how are people going to then access it and how does that magic become usable uh, for folks? So when we think about AI and specifically generative AI, I think it's the combination that Adobe has the data, 
we have the models and we've invested in these core foundation models. And then the surfaces that people can use, the interfaces, whether that's Illustrator or Photoshop or Premiere, that's where the magic comes to life for a customer. Uh, and the generative AI is specifically called Firefly. All the umbrella technology that we've developed is called Adobe Sensei. Hmm. Shantanu, it's Morgan. Um, so yesterday there was this fake image of an explosion near the Pentagon. It went viral. Um, it showed it, it, it went viral and then it shaved about a quarter of a percent off the S&P a little after 10 a.m. Apparently, according to some, some telltale signs of AI generation, although I should note that is not confirmed. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with Adobe or with any of the products that you're rolling out today. But it does raise the question about some of the risks around perhaps, apparently, AI generated images. And I wonder how you're thinking about that as you roll out these products and, and what it means in terms of regulation as we see more lawmakers and more CEOs uh, adding their input to that discussion as well. Morgan, that's an absolutely great question, and it's a responsibility that Adobe takes very seriously. But let me first start off by saying this is not new. Uh, when Photoshop was first introduced, everybody said, you're now going to be able to digitally alter pictures. So how do we understand uh, the authenticity of that picture? The two areas in which Adobe has been spearheading how we should deal with it, the first is what we call verify and trust. And think of it as any image that was uh, changed in Photoshop now has a digital nutrition label. So it specifies who created it, when it was created, and then we can also use AI to determine whether that was altered. And then the second thing that we have is something called con uh, content credentials. And this is all part of a much larger initiative that we have called the Content Authenticity Initiative. So Adobe has pioneered the plumbing of all of that. We have mm. chip manufacturers that have supported this. We have distributors of content that have supported it. Certainly Adobe has led the way in making sure that we have this digital nutritional label. But I think it's a responsibility that we collectively have to train the consumer to want to verify before they trust any information. And Absolutely. I think that is still ahead of us. Uh, and I think that's something that for companies like Adobe, we think about it in terms of the trust that we have with our customers. And I think that's the real way. So okay. it's an uh, education. I got to push you a little bit here because okay. I, I see some potential um, and investors are going to want to know at what point does AI start driving the crossover into A-B testing? where you, you can get different versions of an image, right, in Creative Cloud, and then in marketing, you're able to, you know, put that out there and your users can see which are getting a better response, what's getting clicks to buy, et cetera, all within the Adobe experience. Is that something you're working on and how far out is it? It's absolutely something that we're working on because consumers demand personalization today. Uh, we're all individuals who want the exact piece of content that we want to consume at the right time. Uh, John Morgan, probably a week ago, uh, probably a few months ago, if you had talked to us about what you were watching, everybody would have said the same two or three shows. And today there are hundreds and hundreds of shows that we're watching. And what this entire initiative enables people to do is do that personalization at scale uh, whether it's for making sure that you get the right product, you get the right piece of content. So I think this is actually going to unleash uh, creativity and productivity like it's never been before. You're right in that there are disruptive issues that we need to think about. 
But I think the technology at the end of the day is really powerful, and it's something that's going to enable more and more people uh, to engage with their consumers the way they need to. Lots of e-commerce optimization as well. Shantu Narayan, Adobe CEO, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, VF, Core, and Urban Outfitters earnings are out. Courtney Reagan has the numbers. Hi, Court. Hi, Morgan. Yeah, let's start with Urban Outfitters' first quarter results. They're beating on the earnings, reporting 56 cents a share. The street was looking for 35, so that looks like a pretty wide beat there. A slight beat on the revenues coming in at $1.1 billion. Comparable retail sales up 5%. This was driven by both positive comps online and in-store. Online slightly stronger than in-store, as you would expect, because that's off a smaller base. Free People's comparable sales increased 17 percent, anthropology up 13 percent, but the namesake brand Urban Outfitters comp sales down 13 percent. Newly subscribers, it's the clothing rental program, that's up 118 percent as of the current quarter end versus the prior year's comparable quarter. And the CEO does make a comment that the first quarter sales trend and sales strength has continued quarter to date. You can see shares of Urban Outfitters are higher by about 8 percent. No guidance given in this release. However, we'll have to listen for that on the call. And then if we can move on quickly to VF Corp, they reported earnings of 17 cents per share adjusted. That's three cents above where consensus was. Revenues about in line at $2.74 billion. The company is looking for full year revenues to be flat to slightly higher in constant dollars and for gross margin to see about 100 basis points at least of improvement because they are citing the benefit from a lower promotional environment that they're anticipating. North Face revenue brand brand revenues up 12%, Vans revenues down 14%. The company says it's continuing to work on turning that brand around. America's down 7%, but strength internationally calling out specifically accelerating momentum in greater China. So that continues a trend that we've seen from international retailers with some weakness here domestically, but more strength abroad. And they do note that despite a challenging consumer environment, they are pleased with what they were able to do. You can see shares of VF Corp are higher by 3% in response. Morgan. All right. Courtney Reagan, thank you. Coming up, does Yelp need help? The online review company getting a lift today after an activist called on management to explore strategic alternatives, saying it has, quote, serious concern with Yelp's, quote, abysmal performance. We're going to talk to that activist when overtime returns. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Welcome back to Overtime. Shares of Yelp ending the day in the green, up about... Five and a half, almost six percent after activist investor TCS Capital Management disclosed a stake in the company and is suggesting a sale exploration to Angie. In response to the letter, Yelp says, quote, they maintain an active dialogue with shareholders and values constructive feedback on their business and ways to create value. We reached out to Angie for a comment, but haven't heard back as well. So joining us now is Eric Semler from TCS Capital Management. Eric, uh, you've been a you've been a shareholder for a number of years now. Uh, why? Why now? 
Well, should have done it a lot sooner, but um, the stock is down um, sharply over the last five years. It's down over 100% versus the market. It's down 200. It's down 200% over 10 years. And so it's been very frustrating to be an outside shareholder watching management enrich themselves. They've paid themselves over $40 million. The CEO's paid himself over $40 million over the last five years and sold over $80 million of stock. So he's doing well, but the rest of us are really suffering. And it's sad because Yelp is really... Um, Yelp is really a terrific story. It's a misunderstood stock. They have a long history of missing numbers and taking exorbitant compensation packages. So a lot of investors, a lot of most of the market has just given up on Yelp. Even the sell side has given up on Yelp. There's um, three holes and six, uh, three sells and six holes on the stock. There were only two analysts on their last call. So it's it's basically in the penalty box. And I'm I'm really you know I'm here to really try to unlock value. Uh, you know, nobody else is really paying attention. The company itself has a, a, a wonderful business in home services. Most people think mm -hmm. of Yelp as a restaurant, you know, recommendation site, but it's actually growing revenues, mid-teens, has a, a, you know, terrific balance sheet, 300 million of net cash, and um, is just, you know, trading at probably one of the lowest valuations in the stock market. So we just read that statement from Yelp. Has has the C-suite actually and the board actually engaged with you? Are you are you actually now in dialogue and having constructive conversations about this or not yet? No, they haven't reached out to me. Um, I I don't really um, I, I don't think that's critical. I think the issue is that the board itself, which has really been a rubber stamp board for the CEO who's been there for 20 years, and a lot of the board members have been there a long time. There are some new members on the board who have just joined in the last few years in response to um, a mandate from a settlement, an insider trading settlement that involved the company on the civil side where they had to reform their corporate governance. And I'm really hoping that the, that the new board members will push the, the in the boardroom for the company to do the right thing, which is really to um, explore strategic alternatives. I think there's a lot of interest from strategic buyers, certainly from private equity, and uh, there's a potential uh, deal that could, a tax-free deal between Yelp and Angie's List that could be very beneficial to both Angie's List shareholders and Yelp shareholders. Eric, is Yelp, maybe even Yelp and Angie together, just too small? And I ask that because one might argue that um, you know Google, uh, which Yelp has been, you know, Jeremy has been very vocal about over the last decade, uh, kind of crushed uh, a lot of local possibilities. Of course, Booking has OpenTable. That's a hundred billion dollar company that has at least the restaurant reviews and connection part is just one small piece. Of Does Yelp perhaps need something even bigger than Angie to combine with if it's going to compete? You know, uh, it's a great question. I think it's competing really well, John. It's it's really comes up tops on home services, you know, um, searches. It's it's growing revenue, fifteen percent. It has seventy five million users, two hundred and seventy million reviews. Has a great opportunity to benefit from AI. Um, combining with Angie's List would be huge. It's because it's a it's a five hundred billion dollar market, the home services market. And I guess again, nobody really understands it. Yelp's biggest business and their fastest growing business, 25% growth, is home services, not restaurants. 
and and by combining with Angie, would they're the two best brands in the marketplace. I think the company could generate six hundred million of of EBITDA with synergies, and you know double the value of, of Yelp shares. So I think it's it's a huge market. Home services five hundred billion, and they would they would have a, a fantastic position if they were to combine. All right, Eric Semler, thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, now let's get to a CNBC News update with Pippa Stevens. Pippa. Hey, John. Well, former President Donald Trump's criminal trial in the Stormy Daniels hush money case is scheduled for March 25th. By that time, at least 25 states will have already held their presidential primary contests. The judge set the date as Trump made a virtual appearance in New York criminal court this afternoon. It was his first court appearance since he pled not guilty last month to 34 felony counts of falsifying records. Billionaire businessman Harlan Crow refused once again to give senators information about his relationship with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Crow's attorneys told Senate Judiciary Democrats he believes the committee doesn't have the authority to investigate their relationship. Thomas has been under fire over allegations reported by ProPublica that said he failed to properly disclose trips and gifts paid for by Crow. And Netflix's crackdown on password sharing has begun. The streaming service says it began alerting its members in the U.S. about its new password sharing policy. In an email, the company told customers, quote, your Netflix account is for you and the people you live with. Any users on the account who live outside of the house need to either create their own membership or stay on their current account, but pay an extra $7.99 per month. Morgan, back to you. Yeah, shares of Netflix ending the day flat. Pippa Stevens, thank you. Toll Brothers earnings are out. Kate Rogers has the numbers. Hi, Kate. Hi, Morgan. Better than expected second quarter here for Toll Brothers. EPS coming in at $2.85 versus estimates of $1.91. Revenues $2.49 billion for the quarter versus uh, revenue estimates of $2.06 billion. The stock is up 27% year-to-date, as you can see, higher by 3% right now. The company CEO saying demand for housing is improving, noting that mortgage rates and buyer confidence improved in the quarter, and the demand they saw in January is continuing uh, into the spring. So good news for that company, guys. Back over to you. All right. Kate Rogers, thank you. Shares up 3% right now. When we come back, Mike Santoli breaks down the latest data on the housing market. We're going to stick with this theme for a minute. And the divergence forming between new and existing home sales. Stay with us. Welcome back to Overtime. Shares of Toll Brothers are up better than 2.5% after hours after reporting earnings moments ago. Mike Santoli returns with a look at the housing market. Mike? Yeah, John, and uh, the market for newly built homes that Toll is feeding into is very strong. Good uh, new home sales numbers today, this morning. However, existing home sales have suffered. There's just not enough uh, homes on the market. We know people are locked in with low mortgage rates if they already own a home. And so you see this divergence right here. Now, this is based on percent change, not absolute numbers going back to 2009. So the trend is diverging. The number of existing home sales far outpaces in in gross terms those uh, newly built homes. And you also see pending home sales also on the downswing. Those are ones that are in contract for existing homes. So it's unclear whether, in fact, you know, just a very hot new home market can really act as a uh, clearing mechanism for a clogged up uh, home market at this point. But it's definitely a bright spot for the builders. They were down today, are also down on a month-to-day basis, the home builders. Uh, But we'll see if those toll numbers after hours changes the story for tomorrow. 
All right, Mike Santoli, thank you. We have a news alert on Virgin Orbit. Richard Branson's bankrupt rocket company is shutting down and selling different assets, assets to different buyers. Rocket Labs, Stratolaunch, uh, which is the startup that was founded by the late Paul Allen, and another subsidiary of another startup, Vast Space. Altogether, the combined total of the bids is around $36 million. That's for everything spanning from the company's California HQ to its 747 jet that's used to air launch rockets and various machinery and equipment. The company filed for bankruptcy in April after uh, a failed bid to secure funding. Keep in mind, when Virgin Orbit went public uh, at the height of trading, it, it was a company, it had despacked. it was a company that had been valued uh, in the low billions of dollars. So here we have... The closing of a chapter for this company, although these assets will now go to other space startups uh, and the technology would potentially continue to live on in those capacities. When you say the low billions, how close are we to one one hundredth of its peak valuation at, at 36 million? I mean, was it? That, that's a tough question to I, ask I have on the to spot, go back and I have we're to go pretty back close, right? It's either, but. it's either a 50th or a hundredth. That's quite that's yeah. quite a haircut. It's, it's, it is a haircut. Yeah. Uh, and it speaks to the cash crunch we're seeing among a lot of startups, including startups that went public via SPAC in, in recent years as we've seen the entire market come under pressure. Yeah. Well, interest rates, speaking of, staging a comeback this month. Up next, we will discuss where that's creating opportunities for investors in the corporate debt market. Stay with us. Welcome back. The debt ceiling impasse creating an interesting situation in the debt market. Debt issued by AAA-rated firms like Johnson & Johnson and Microsoft are trading at a yield discount to U.S. Treasuries uh, of similar duration. The Wall Street Journal pointing out this oddity in a report today. The U.S. lost its, quote, AAA rating in 2011 during that year's debt ceiling standoff. And joining us now is Richard Byrne, Benefit Street Partners President. Benefit Street is a credit-focused alternative asset manager. Richard, welcome to the show. We're, uh, we're excited to have you on. And that is where I want to start before we broaden out this conversation. And that is some of the angst that we have seen in uh, fixed income overall in the midst of all of this D.C. drama. Um, how you're assessing it, what, how you're thinking about it from, from a risk perspective here over these coming days uh, amid broader macro challenges that we talk about day in, day out. Sure. Hey, Morgan, thank, thanks for having me. Um, well, first of all, it's never a good thing when the government is at risk of defaulting on its debt. Um, but I think as a, for, the, for the most part, the market is looking through that. Um, and ironically, all this talk about what's going to happen next, either with the debt ceiling or with a looming uh, recession or inflation or interest rates going up further before they eventually go down, I, I, I think that's sort of missing the point. I think the point is that we've already had the seismic event that has occurred in credit. It's been the near historic rate move that we've seen from near zero rates to, you know, our base rates on our loans are over 5% today. Um, that has meaningful implications on the portfolios of lenders like us. We do corporate lending and real estate lending. And ironically, the, 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 the impact is very similar, regardless of the asset class. Just higher rates is both good and it's bad. So let's talk about how they're both good and, and bad. Okay, so um, first of all, if you're a lender and our portfolios are largely floating rate loans, so uh, when rates go up, that's great. I mean, there's nothing better for a lender than to get higher rates on the loans. You earn higher yields. Uh, everything is great, right? But, uh, you know, I don't know if you were, when you were a kid, if your parents ever told you, you know, there's, there, there, you can have too much of a good thing. And in this case, too much of a good thing really means that um, that 
added interest burden has put stress on the underlying companies. And I'll give you some numbers to underline that. The average company we underwrote uh, a loan for in 2021, uh, you know, before before rates started, you know, this this climb upwards, mm-hmm. uh, had interest coverage of 2.6 times. In other words, you earn 2.6 times more than the amount of debt service that you had to cover, interest expense. Um, very comfortable margin for error. Well, what's happened is if that company, just hypothetically, nothing changed about that company. Its earnings didn't change, nothing changed. You just recalibrated it for the current level of interest rates. So the average interest rates at that time was about 75 basis points on SOFR, the base rate. That's over 5% today. So that interest mm-hmm. coverage on that same loan is now 1.6 times. So that's one turn less interest coverage. Did that company default? No. But what happened to its margin for error? It got reduced dramatically. Yeah. And could there be problems in the economy, higher rates, you know, whatever? That margin for error goes down and down. So the market is pricing in higher defaults. Yeah. And of course, that's probably part of the reason that commercial real estate and commercial real estate lending are in such hyper focus right now, especially given all of the regional bank turmoil that we've seen play out in recent months. Yeah. So real estate is the same story. But interestingly, floating rate loans in commercial real estate usually have interest rate hedges or caps. Most lenders have required borrowers to put caps in place. They hated it at the time. But boy, are they happy that they have them in place now. So in a lot of cases for commercial borrowers, this this added interest expense hasn't really been a burden to them yet. But all that's going to change when those loans come up for maturity. And real estate's a very interesting asset class. It's it's very easy to sort of calibrate things. And really what the commercial real estate market is saying is that when interest rates go up, um, properties are worth less. And if a property is worth less, then somebody will lend you less when it comes time to refinance it. And if somebody will lend you less, then you're either going to have to put in more money, you're going to have to turn over the keys to the lender, or whatever the case may be. But there's a true up. Mm. And we're going to see that. And and Morgan, I mean, I think the best way to say this is, is markets are very efficient. The average commercial mortgage rate trades today at 63% of its book value. The market is putting almost a 40% discount on what the value of those assets is versus where it's trading, hmm. even though the earnings are at records not seen in the last 10 years because the benefits of those higher rates. Yeah. I think that's the best way to explain it. Um, and that was a great explanation. We didn't even get to private credit, but we got to leave it there for now. Richard Byrne, thanks for joining us. Thank you. After the break, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon weighing in on the recession debate at CNBC's inaugural CEO Council Summit. We're going to tell you what he said when overtime comes back. Welcome back. CNBC hosting its inaugural CEO Council Summit this week in California. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon just spoke on a panel saying it's maybe a question of just how deep the coming recession might be. I think there's a greater chance of a recession than, than not as we look at the end of the year into early 2024. Um, but I'd say it's uncertain. If there is a recession, my best guess is at the moment it will be relatively shallow. But I think it's very hard to tighten economic conditions, have the inflation that we're having, and not ultimately you know, have an impact on economic growth. And so some of this is a rebalancing of the imbalances from the pandemic. But, but we'll see. But it's unclear. For more exclusive content from the CNBC CEO Summit, go to cnbc.com slash CEO. Not certain that there'll be a recession, but, you know, how do you tighten and land relatively softly? 
Yeah, I, it's interesting. I want to go back and sort of compare that to some of his previous interviews on CNBC. And I think back to last fall when he was basically saying that he thought there was a good chance of a recession. So I wonder how and if the rhetoric and some of the commentary that's being used has, uh, has shifted here over the last couple of months, especially as some of the data has been more resilient. Yeah, and the second half looks a little iffy. All right, well, Apple inking a multi-billion dollar deal with Broadcom to make 5G radio frequency components in the U.S. What this deal means for Broadcom and the rest of the chip industry when overtime returns. Made in America, special edition. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Overtime. Check out Broadcom shares hitting an all-time high after the company signed a multi-billion dollar deal with Apple to produce U.S.-made 5G components. Our Steve Kovac joins us for more. Steve, I was a little surprised at the excited reaction of this at first because Apple and Broadcom have had a relationship for a while. For a Apple time. is trying to make its own 5G radios, take that business from Qualcomm, improve its margins, and it's been having trouble doing that. So it's not surprising to me that they're not trying to build Qualcomm equipment as well as, as uh, Broadcom equipment yes. as well as Qualcomm. Right. The Qualcomm, I think, is the first target because they hate paying the couple bucks per iPhone sold. But here, this was a surprise because earlier in the year, we had that Bloomberg report saying Apple was trying to bring these very chips we're talking about right now in-house. And of course, that puts shares of Broadcom under pressure. But now they're saying, look, we got this new deal. They're not saying how much it is or how long it's for, but we can use the last deal of, of similar types, $15 billion. That, that's how much Apple ended up paying. Also, a little bonus here they're adding. This is an American job story, as you alluded to before the break. And they're going to be making many of these chips in Fort Collins, Colorado. And they promised to spend a certain amount on U.S. manufacturing, right. this is important because we need to something billion dollars. invest in that to bring the jobs in before others can build on top of it and there's momentum. Exactly. And the question then is, how was Apple developing these chips, by the way? That's another big question here. And could they just not get it out in time and had to cut this other deal with Broadcom in order to do it? I think the, the, the Qualcomm modem is basically their first priority here and probably going to see that. Uh, the Apple-made 5G modem, based on Intel technology, by the way, um, in 2024, most likely. And then maybe they'll try to weed out Broadcom after that. I, I want to know how this potentially speaks to supply chain dynamics and maybe even potentially a little bit geopolitics, this idea of um, investing in that manufacturing capability here stateside when we know Apple has been trying to expand beyond yeah. China. Yeah, but the, the vast majority of these chips are still fabricated yeah. overseas. They're still, uh, the, by the way, the devices themselves still assembled overseas. So is this going to alleviate all those supply chain problems that we've seen from Apple during the pandemic? Absolutely not. But it does help alleviate that pressure. In a way, you don't see that much high-end chip work in mainland China. A lot of that's in Taiwan. Right. Of course, Intel has fabs in Germany and Israel here as well. So it's not like this is just about China. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's, it's, it's everywhere. But, it's also, but China was the problem, right? That's where we saw those hangups. That's where we saw the COVID policies really hurting Apple and others' ability to get these products out the door. We saw the TSMC announcement uh, several months ago, you know, building chips here. Again, that's, very, that's a drop in the bucket for how many chips act, Apple actually makes. But look, this yeah. is a good thing they can do to kind of wave their hand and say, look, we're, we're investing in America chips again. And there's an election coming up. This all mm -hmm. ties into it. All right, Steve Kovac. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Tomorrow, don't miss 
Overtime's interview with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. We're going to discuss that big lunar lander award with Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, the future of human spaceflight. There's an all-private crew currently at the space station, and perhaps even the financial health of some of these space startups, given the Virgin Orbit news we just got a, a short while ago. All right, that's going to do it for us here at Overtime. Fast Money begins now. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.